This is the Command Your Brand podcast, where we talk to world changers, visionaries, and founders, people that are doing big things and changing this planet in a positive way. We're learning their stories, techniques, and exactly what you need to know so that you can do things in a big way. The time is now. Get ready to take command of your brand. Hey, what is up, everybody? Jeremy here. And guys, I'm very excited for today's conversation. We have Scott Terman with us today, who is the founder of Bright Ray Publishing. And interestingly enough, if you hear Scott's background, it doesn't seem like it exactly aligns with what he's doing now because he's done some pretty cool things, including writing cryptography for organizations such as NASA, the U.S. Department of Defense, Disney, and many Fortune 500 companies. But now he's doing publishing services for CEOs and founders. So I'm really excited to kind of get into this story, find out how he got there, and also chat about you know why you need to do a book or why you don't need to do a book. So Scott, thanks for hanging out with me today, man. Thank you for having me. Where do you want to start? Well, I wanted to start with first off, you know, how do you go from being somebody that is, it sounds like the ultimate tech guy to being in the publishing world? Like, how does that transition happen? And how does that, you know, occur for you? I was actually named after an astronaut, Scott Carpenter. My dad was an engineer on the original Mercury capsule. I guess I had NASA a bit of my blood. And then, you know, 25 years ago, I kind of started my career there. And uh, I'm a bit of a nerd, always have been. My dad had me (laughs) writing code when I was 12 years old. So, oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. uh, I've been doing it. So, I was doing uh, C and Visual Basic when I was like 10. So, I think I recognized nerddom in myself and and in you. (laughs) I was writing pattern recognition software for Cray mainframes of my dad when I was. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Back in the 80s, it was a different time. Child labor laws, et cetera, et cetera. But there are a lack thereof, right? So yeah, no, I uh, I started working there, and for the first month, I didn't have a computer, so I only had an almost all access badge to go anywhere on NASA property, which would be a dream of mine, you know, since I was a child. Oh, and dude, that had to be it. so cool, by the way. Like, did you get to see the secret stuff or no? No, no. I, I mean, uh, mostly access. There's not as much cool secret stuff as you may think there, but it's still pretty badass. But I guess to go, you know. I get to go see the launching pad where my dad's rockets were and, you know, the VAB building and as close as you can get with, you know, without the right kind of access. But yeah, I mean, you know, 14 foot alligators because no one there is hunting anything. There's wild pigs everywhere just kind of roaming the place. And I saw a bobcat there and I don't know, it's just, it was a really good experience. But about, you know, so just fast forward, you know, 20 years, I started about 10 years ago. I started a technology company. Yeah, I guess at my height, I had about 30 employees. It was awesome. You know, you're kind of doing your deal. You're, you know, capping your own ship. And, you know, in that third year, you're like, my payroll is a half a million dollars a month. It's a little <laughs> butt puckering, you know? <laughs> I mean, I feel you. So we don't have a team that's that big. We have yeah. uh, 18 people on our team. It's funny enough, like, it's double what we were last year, and, and you're running payroll and you're like, damn, I got to make them a lot of money to be profitable, man. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's definitely, and then that's the thing is, you know, you, if you deal with Fortune Fives, you know that you sometimes, do net 45. But best what? You can't bill for 30 days. It's actually net 75. If you add the 30 days to bill, then 40 just, yeah. So you know, you're backed up a million bucks. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's a little bit much. And about a year ago, this is a COVID business, right? I uh, I realized I absolutely, I'm tired of technology in that kind of form. We still, still have the employees. We still do that technology kind of business, but 
I've been trying to write a book for 10 years. And it was really just more of a negotiating book for nerds because you know we're constantly getting kind of taken advantage of because we just we're kind of trusting folk. So, and I've always had this kind of deep seated hatred for technical recruiters. So I I don't know if I can I don't you may have to blur this, but it. Well, no, you you blurred it yourself, man. That asterisk is helpful. <laughs> okay, but ultimately, I guess it's a, a nerd's guide negotiating. We'll just call it that. But there's other cuss words kind of in the tail. And then so I published. So I actually I, I couldn't do it. it. Took me ten years to do it. And a buddy of mine's daughter had just, you know, had been writing books for years. She's my writing partner, Zoe Rose. You know, we finished this book. We kind of worked out a process, you know, how to do it through Zoom. And then we published and then we sold a lot of books. You know, I was able to kind of further my business because of aligning myself, you know, with other nerds. And then somebody was like, how did you do that? How'd you have time? I won a book too. It's interesting how that works, by the way, like, because that's even how our company Command Your Brand started is, you know, my podcast blew up. We had, you know, a lot of listens in our first month. I started like talking to celebrities and stuff like that. And people are like, man, how do I do that? And so like we started a business to help people because they asked us for it. I love it when that happens, right? Because it's kind of like a great survey point, right? There's already a public out there to give what you're doing. It's organic, right? And, you know, there's, I mean, I've read a million books on starting a business and doing this and it it takes you a while to kind of fail, you know, prior to my company 10 years ago, I started I definitely was just kind of learning accounting and how to read, you know, profit and loss reports. And, you know, you get a little bit better at it, but, you know, so that first person comes by and they're like, you know, Hey, how much would you charge if you kind of the same thing for me? I'm like, I don't know, $15,000. And he's like, where do I sign? <laughs> and then, uh, is that when one, you have the thought that you're like, Hmm, maybe I should have charged double if you didn't have to think yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, and then another one and another one and another one and another one. And it goes on. We're like, okay, 18,000, 25,000 keep and there, now there's no pushback. There's definitely a demand for it. And here we are. You know, and that's the thing is that all I do is talk to B-level celebrities, CEOs, founders, inventors, musicians, F-16 pilots, tank commanders, submarine commanders, astronauts. It's bonkers. It's literally my job now is to talk to these amazing people as a result of this conduit. But it's, it's a lot more fun than just plain technology, you know? So let me ask you this then, Scott, like, because I think one of the like people always ask me the question, you're like, should everyone start a podcast? And my response is always, no, some people should just not start a podcast. It's good for others. It's not good for, you know, for everyone. So I guess, should everyone write a book? Like, I guess when we're looking at that, like, what is the strategy of why and when we should write a book? You obviously have to have, you need to have an expertise, but you really have to have that goal in mind from minute one, right? Is it to get more business? Is it to do the speaking circuit? Is it your second life after your retirement? Is you know, is it you want to, I don't know, get more money for your family office? Do you want to raise Series B funding? Do you want to, everybody has a different reason. And if you can identify that and you can identify the audience, if you want to write a book for everybody, you're writing a book for nobody. The best kind of book is that book that literally 500 people on the entire planet would pick up because a hundred of them could become one of your clients. And that's the real reason. If you can, you know, put most of your expertise in a book, it's that it's proof positive. Look, I know what I'm doing. Go ahead and read the book. If you don't want to do it yourself, I'm the person to call. I'll do it for you. I love that you mentioned, though, if you write a book for everyone, like that's not a good idea because we see this in a lot of different industries, right? Like people realize that they don't actually have a target market. They don't have an avatar. They don't have somebody to know that they're helping. And that's not going to impact anyone, right? Like you have to know exactly who you're helping and how you're doing it. There really isn't a purpose to writing a book. That's exactly right. And it's, you know, this is more of a a sniper rifle than a shotgun approach, Mm -hmm. right? This is a very, very targeted kind of audience, right? I mean, so my workflow is this. So someone, somehow we we contact someone, we're doing a Zoom call, we're trying to do an exploratory call. 
the moment I get off that call, I take my phone. I do a quick, hey, thanks for this, that, and the other. I then take one of these, which is a video screen sent inside of a of a card. Oh, they're pretty cool. I had one of the, I forget which newspaper he writes for, but I had one of the newspaper comic book guys, the guy that draws the comics for the newspaper, send me one of those, a Stu Heineck. Very cool stuff. Then with the book, put that with your book, FedEx it over, you know, and then it really is your closure. It'll go through the roof because ultimately you're the expert. They don't have to guess what mm-hmm. you do, what your expertise is. It's in the book. And, mm-hmm. you know, if it lends itself. It's very convenient for things like, I don't know if you have a high ticket item you're selling or it's finance or, or whatever. This is definitely the best way to go. Kind of the very minimum take it to the next level. Oh, you got, I saw you got the FedEx package, you know, I'll call you the next day and on and on and on. But this is also a great way to get into newspapers, interviews, TV, if you do this to the editor, right, with the right pitch, they're going to look at it at the very minimum. Whereas if you email them, they're not going to look at it. Mail is underutilized underutilized nowadays for advertising. You know, that's interesting too, because it's like, I've talked to a lot of people that do like postcard marketing and postcard marketing right now is a lot hotter than it used to be because everybody's doing email marketing and online marketing and geographical targeting and stuff like that. Like the mail is something that somehow we've forgotten about. It's like the phone, right? Actually calling people, you can get results, but people have kind of gotten rid of these things that have worked for a really long time. So I guess when we're looking at it then, Scott, like, you know, that's kind of where the book can help you, right? It can help you if you're trying to get close to the right relationship, to close a sale, to create an opportunity, whatever it may be. How do we approach this thing then? Like, how do we approach writing a book that is actually going to help us, right? Like what's kind of the wrong approach and what's the right approach? And how do we make something that actually is valuable to the people we're sending it to? So we definitely talked about writing it for everybody. It's a terrible idea. You really want to write it to the exact person. And we kind of vision, we try to figure out who that audience is very, very early. And then we try to figure out that thesis that appeals that audience very, very, very early. And then, you know, we've actually got rubrics. Think of rubrics, a way of measuring quality for each chapter. So when they get the first chapter written, well, in the rubrics, like, did it state a task? Does it still the right audience? Is it well-written? You know, so every chapter kind of makes sure it kind of follows the, what you're trying to get at, basically. Mm. That's the right way to do it. The wrong way to do it is definitely, you know, uh, A, try to do it yourself because unless you're trained in such things, it's going to be awful. It just is. Anybody who's a writer can tell you that it's a skill. It's a sword that needs to be used a lot before you're mm-hmm. ever really good at it. And this is why I have a staff of badass writers. <laughs> well, it's interesting you it. mentioned that too, because like I had started working on my book last year, wrote 50,000 words, got to the end. I'm like, this is atrocious. This is trash. So I started rewriting the entire thing. And I feel like that first exercise of actually doing it helped me to hone my words and my thoughts enough that I could actually write something coherent and helpful and was in alignment with what I was looking to do. I think sometimes you got to, and you know, I may be wrong about this. You, you know more than me, obviously. But I think sometimes you got to get that out of your system before you can go where you need to go. Like the first thing you write may not be the right thing. And that's the thing. So that's absolutely true. But what you're talking is a full cycle, right? That's a cycle of just one. Now mm-hmm. imagine if you had a team of three people and an editor you're going to go through those cycles every week. It's going mm-hmm. to be way better as opposed to having to reevaluate where you were, you know, every third, you know, let's say it's a year in between. Right. Now you're doing it the same way with a bunch of people who've done this, you know, for many, many people. And they're, they're kind of snapshotting all those things on a weekly basis. The quality is going to be higher. Now, especially if you break down your book that you, down your second 50,000 words you've written, now do it by chapter and just start saying out to your writing partner, whoever's helping you kind of do it. And you'll find that the quicker that sample rate is, the higher the sample rate, the much better the quality of the book's going to be. 
Mm. That's interesting too, because I've heard people say like, don't edit your own work, send it to somebody else that knows your voice. I'm sure you've seen that to be true, right? So what we do is we have an hour interview a week, right? Where we interview the person who's trying to get this book done. We have a certain set of questions and all that stuff is all these questions are kind of done through that lens, right? So you know, we're basically pulling the book out of the person's head. All they have to do is muse, right? Mm. There's tales and those you know, anecdotes and they've all kind of been sewn together. But also when it's all said and done, we take that video, just like the one you're doing now, we send it to a bot that turns everything into text that was said. Scott says this, it says this, you know, and then I can get a histogram of the most used phrases and words of that writer. What's a histogram? I haven't heard that word before. A bar chart. Just a bar chart. Oh, okay, cool. Words, right? When done in a bar chart. And then you can okay. say, oh, well, that phrase is said 13 times. What's that? You can kind of get the voice. Oh, that's interesting. Of- so it kind of yeah. shows you like how they commonly communicate. So you can make sure when you're writing it, it's communicated in the same fashion. Correct. And, and that's the thing is we're not ghost writers. We're, you're writing the book. Right. We're yeah. just we're just making it not suck, so to speak. You know, we're trying to make it, we're sanding it down and we're trying to make you know, so it's a little lull here and well, let's get another anecdote to support that theory. And you know, and all the all the shepherds have to kind of flow into each other and and that takes skill and that kind of takes more than one person, in my opinion. It takes more than you know, a couple of people to make it right. So you mentioned like having a book that doesn't suck. I guess like when a book sucks, what are those things that are wrong with it? What are people doing wrong that makes it not a good book? Much like a podcast, unless you're entertaining, people are reading it like you pointed out there for information, there for a little bit of entertainment, maybe a lot yep. of entertainment on the podcast. It's exactly the same problem. You're weaving those tales and those stories that are not boring, sold in a way that, that's not awful, right? Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, the whole point of all of this is branding, right? It's that kind of personal brand. That book is, is a way that people hold out to say, look, I know what I'm talking about. You know, I, I get interviews as a result of this book and, you know, on and on and on, right? But ultimately, Personal branding is a verb, right? It's the mm-hmm. act. It's the act of sanding down what people, that narrative of your best points are when they look you up. And and all this kind of leads to this, right? If you look me up, Scott Terman, right, on Google, you'll mm-hmm. see that Google kind of separates out with something called a knowledge panel. Uh, Bill, I'm not saying I'm Bill Gates. Yeah, they, they show over up on the right, like as like a right. first result for your name. That's right. And you can kind of control that a little bit, especially when you write a book that easy, that trigger that is almost within 24 hours to get that right. And then it takes a lot of other magic to make it look perfect. But, but yeah, that's the quickest way to get that. And that's, mm-hmm. you're controlling the narrative then you're controlling your picture. You're controlling what they see. You're controlling what stories they read about you. You know, the next thing is, I mean, just like I looked you up on Google news, you're everywhere, right? Well, thanks man. That is a sniff test. of. It's why uh, I use my middle name, by the way. Cause if you look up Jeremy Slate, he's everywhere too, but he's not me. <laughs> I know I did. And that's the other thing is that if someone, if so depending on where you are, right? Google specific, if you get your knowledge panel triggered and they look you up from the other guys, I don't know, from England, mm-hmm. the same Jeremy Slate's not going to show up. Right. So it's, it's sometimes very geographic, right? So you, at the very minimum, you can kind of control your circle of geography, you know, based on your name. But, you know, if your name is Bill Gates, you're screwed, right? There's no, no if you're... You're, you're not, not out creating that, man. But I think that's a really interesting point because I don't think this is something people consider, right? I think like, you know, you should always be concerned with leads and quality of leads and how they're coming in. But I think the thing people are missing is what you're talking about here. Yep. How people experience you, whether it's online, whether it's where they see you, whether it's your social media, but how people see you and perceive you is vital to how they're going to work with you if they even are. I like that. I'm going to write that down. Perceive you. How <laughs> people perceive you. No, because it is, it is an experience, right? It's, it's, well, you're creating a world for people yeah. to come into. And yeah. if you're not like, here's the thing you got to worry about, right? I knew a guy a number of years ago, great guy, good business, 
but he had somebody that had a business deal that went bad and his first Google result was a ripoff report. Wasn't actually a ripoff, but it's hard as heck to get your stuff off of that website. So now the first thing people experience from him because he wasn't creating all this other stuff is a ripoff report. His calls and business in were cut into a third. So these are things you have to be thinking about you know, you have to think about like a negative thing could happen. You could also think about like, hey, I can make my sales cycle shorter. That's brilliant, Scott. I don't think a lot of people are thinking about it from that viewpoint. It's interesting because ultimately if personal brand is, you know, you're trying to put your name in a lot of places, right? The book's the best way to do that, by the way, in my opinion. But ultimately you're trying to make a bunch of noise, right? Mm -hmm. And these books are, they're, think of them as a vector into places, right? This is a vector on a podcast. These books are a vector on the news cycle. These are vectors as being an expert in something for those interviews, right? And the more noise you make, the easier it is to kind of sand down the things you want people to see. And But if Ripoff reports the only thing Google has to pull from, Oof. you're screwed. You're screwed. You got to have a bunch of other material out there, you know, to kind of dilute it up. Well, and I think a lot of times I always say this to people is the wrong time to think about, you know, negative press is when you've already got it. Like you should have been building positive press all along. You should have been writing all along. But, you know, that's my Drew on my team who you've spoken to. He's fond of saying, you know, the best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago or today. Right. Like, so it's, you know, if you haven't been doing those things, that's fine. Let's start doing them. But I guess we're looking at one of the things I had a question about, Scott, and maybe I'm wrong in thinking about this. When we're looking at the book we're writing. I guess, how important or unimportant is like the timelessness of it? And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Everything in Afghanistan has been a little bit weird recently, right? I wanted to kind of understand that part of the world because I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I want to understand what's happening just so I can feel like I sort of get the news. So I got this. The great guy is ass handed to him in, in Afghanistan. And people have been getting their butts kicked in Afghanistan for 3,000 years. I'm just right. Like, so I wanted to try and find a book to understand that because a lot of right. empires have failed there. Alexander the Great, you know, they were called the Bactrians at the time. Didn't really go so well. So I got a book and the book was called Afghanistan. I'm like, okay, great. So it's probably going to explain the whole thing to me. It was called The Graveyard of Empires. Book was yep, written in 2000. 13. And most of it was based on like the whole first half of the book is based on US policy in Afghanistan, which now none of that matters. So I'm like, I returned the audible books. I'm like, well, this stuff really doesn't matter anymore. So I guess when we're looking at what we're writing, how important is it that something that has longevity or that's timeless, like how important is to that to what we're putting together? Or is it not important at all? It's the thing is, it's got to be important at the time that you're doing what you're doing, right? It's got to be very specific. Afghanistan, as an example, if that book were simply about the history of Alexander, if that were the, the history of the Mujahideen, if that were the history of the Russians going in there, if that were the history of everybody failing, it would be timeless. But it's mm-hmm. not as valuable as if it talks about what's happening right now. And I'm saying, yeah, right now is the most value if that's what you're looking for. Now, mm-hmm. these books, you know, just make it just second edition third edition, fourth edition, they can, they can be, you don't have to make them, you know, write them when they're going to be you know, a thousand years from now, they'll still be readable. You just you need to be, they got to be valuable now. Mm. So timeliness of it is really important. You can just kind of do an update later if need be. Yeah. Uh, for our work weeks on this like bazillionth edition as an example, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, he just keeps adding to it and subtracting to it. The Graveyard of Empires needs an update, needs another yeah. chapter. Yeah, 2013 was the last update to it. And I'm kind of like, oof, that is like eight years ago. It's different. But I can see how that could be, especially like, you know, if you're in technology, if you're in a lot of these different areas, those things are emerging quickly. And I guess like, how much of an issue is that, by the way, like with a lot of that stuff changing and, you know, you're going to press six months to a year before that comes out, I guess, how much of an issue is that of things being different after your book is done? 
Well, if you're hyper technology, that's going to be an issue. If you're doing the whatever version of Angular or C Sharp or Java, that's going to be a problem. Your release cycle needs to be four months, right? And then you got to update it <laughs> four or five months. And that's typically not our kind of target. Our target are these broad, valuable business books of what your brand is and what you're basically trying to hold yourself out as an expert. And if that's already bad by the time you go to press, you got problems. You see what I'm saying? I mean, something that like, for instance, what you do, your, your expertise is in podcasting. Mm-hmm. It's just probably going to be see 80% the same book a year from now that it is, or 90% the same book as it is now, because a lot of those methods aren't going to change in mm-hmm. the next year, right? Yeah. But 10 years, who knows? What do you mean you didn't come out with 3D podcasting? Or what do you, you didn't even mention holographic podcasts. I'm just saying. Could you imagine that, man? That would be uh, freaky. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just saying, you know, there's probably going to be, I would keep writing another edition if it adds the book and it helps you get more, you know, more notoriety and more business. Keep adding to the book every year. First edition. I've got a second edition coming out in a week mm. from this. Well, Scott, this has been really interesting, man. I think we've kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of people why they need to have a book, how this fits in their strategy. Because once again, people need to know you before they get to you. They need to trust you before they get to. So for people hearing this, if they want to connect with you or if they, you know, they're weighing doing a book, they're thinking about doing a book, they're ready to do a book, how's going to be the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, just go to brightraypublishing.com or look us up on Google or look me up, Scott Terman on Google. And all those roads lead to what's me. I mean, I've got a whole team, you know, that will kind of introduce, kind of pull that book out of your head or kind of pull at least a thesis out of your head to make sure it's got value. And we got to get that done first to make sure there's got value to be written about. And then we can kind of move on from there. Very cool. Scott Sherman, thank you so much for hanging out with me today, man. It was awesome to meet you face to face. Have a great day.